These are the Greek Myth Files, your introduction to the world of Greek myth in a smart but accessible way. They are brought to you by the University of New Hampshire's Classics Program and its crack team of undergraduates. I'm your host, Professor Scott Smith. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Greek Myth Files. This is the first in our series, What Greek Myth Is and Is Not, where we ask and try and answer some basic questions about Greek myth. We're not going to try and define Greek myth today. That's for the next episode. Instead, we're going to cover some basic topics that are necessary to understand how myth operated in the Greek world. For example, what the content of Greek myth was, how the Greeks thought about their own past, and a bit about how religion figures into the mythical story world. Along the way, we'll introduce you to some important terms and ideas that all myth buffs will need to keep in mind as we progress through these next episodes. Okay, let's get started by anticipating a more extensive debate in the next episode, which will be devoted to asking and exploring the question, what is Greek myth? Now, if you ask 20 scholars of myth what myth is, you'll get a lot of different answers. And just like the proverbial snowflake, no two answers will be exactly the same. You'll get a lot of hemming and hawing, and there will be some that will exclaim, there is no such thing as Greek myth, while others will look at their watch and say, oh, would you look at the time? Gotta run. I'll give you my thoughts later. Ta-ta. And some would simply say, just like Justice Potter Stewart on pornography, that instead of trying to corral myth with a specific definition, one simply knows it when one sees it. For now, though, we're going to have to have at least a working idea of what we're talking about, and we'll save the details for another episode. To keep it short and sweet, we'll start with the simplest and probably least helpful definition. At its most basic level, a myth is a story. In fact, the word muthos in Greek originally meant something like speech as opposed to deeds and action. And it was often used where the goal was persuasion, to try and convince someone of a fact or a course of action. Eventually, that basic meaning of muthos would change from speech or words to something closer to the modern meaning of myth, which implies some unbelievable element. We can also add to this basic idea that a myth is a story that is anonymous. In other words, no one person is responsible for the creation of the tale, but it circulates without authorship or ownership. This is why most scholars would agree that myths are what we call traditional stories, and belong to the whole culture rather than to a single author. This is why a lot of stories start off with statements like, they say, or the story goes. FYI, for those who love etymology, the word traditional itself comes from the Latin word trado, meaning to hand down, and it suggests another important aspect of myths. They are passed down as cultural stories from group to group and passed on from generation to generation. We'll talk more below about the content, but generally speaking, myths were traditional tales that focused on the heroes of the past and the gods and goddesses that could play a role in their lives. In the earliest period, before the invention of writing, myths were passed down orally, sung over and over by poets and storytellers, until somewhere around 750 BCE, when the Phoenician alphabet was imported to Greece by Greek merchants. The oral nature of myth is an important aspect to keep in mind for several reasons, but I'll give you just two here. First, each time a story was told, it was told at a specific time and in front of a specific audience. In other words, it was a performance for a particular moment in time. Second, and this is related to the first point, 
Each time a story was told, it was subject to adaptation and change. The basic story, of course, was preserved, but details, some substantial, might have been changed based on the new occasion. Imagine if a poet was traveling to different places in Greece, singing the same general story. He, and as far as we know it was always a he, might adapt part of the story to appeal to the people of a particular region. He might even introduce into the larger fabric of the story a local but more minor hero from that region, or change the location of an important episode and set it nearby the place he was giving his performance. From the modern world, we might compare a stand-up comedian adapting her loosely scripted performance to please the people of a certain city, or vary her shtick if an audience takes her in a particular direction. Now, these traditional tales had a long lifespan, so to speak. Just how long were myths told and passed along to other generations? That's actually a great question. It really depends a lot on a number of factors. For example, it matters what we mean by passed along and what it means for the stories to be a living part of the Greek and Roman culture. Are myths alive only if they are part of the oral culture, passed down from one singer-poet to the next? Or can they live on in written form, divorced from the lived experience of the culture? Even if we consider myth as primarily oral in nature, if we are right that many myths originated in the Bronze Age of Greece, or soon thereafter, as is likely, we're talking about well over 1,500 years that myth held a deep and abiding importance around the Mediterranean. And if you include the poems and other written sources into the mix, we can add another 1,600 years or so up to the present day. Good stories, simply put, matter and live on. We noted in the last section that a poet-singer could adapt a story or parts of a story depending on the needs or desires of a performance. Even if the audience had heard of or knew of another version, they likely would not have batted an eye or protested about that different version. Why is that? Because the Greeks expected myth to be fluid and for there to be competing versions floating around. And that's just what happened as myths were told over centuries, in different locations and by different people with different aims. It's simply impossible for us to identify the vast number of local traditions that were floating around in the earliest periods when the Greek myths were passed down only orally. That's because we don't have recordings or writings by the earliest Greeks that preserve the stories that were being told. But fortunately for us, around the 8th century BCE, nearly 2,800 years ago, the Greeks decided to preserve some of their stories by using an exciting new technology, alphabetic writing. Now, we tend not to think of writing as a technology, but the introduction of alphabetic writing was, for the Greeks, as revolutionary as the internet has been for us. But it's important to understand that only some and certainly not all of the stories circulating orally were ever written down and preserved on papyrus, an early version of paper which was expensive to make and process in Egypt and more so to import into Greece. Take the most important epic poems from the Greek world, the Iliad and Odyssey, which were attributed to someone named Homer. They were obviously important enough to commit to writing, but it remains an open question whether such tightly woven and long stories could have been composed as we have them without the help of writing, but that's for another episode. It was the invention of writing and its use in preserving Greek myths that allows us to read and study them today. 
but the Greeks would have encountered their stories in a number of ways, even as writing became firmly fixed in the Greek world. Young children would have continued to hear stories from their parents and other caretakers. People would have seen artwork on temples and on vases. In Athens, theatergoers would have seen myths dramatized on stage before their very eyes. And eventually, as literacy became more important, a small portion of Greeks would learn myth in schools by reading and writing these stories for themselves, as well as hearing them from their teachers as they explained the texts that they were reading. But our portal to Greek myth begins and ends almost exclusively with the written versions that have been preserved for us, with a little bit of artwork to help us along the way. For several centuries, myths continued to be passed along both orally and increasingly in writing. But one thing remains certain. A storyteller was not beholden to the myth, because when all is said and done, there never was a single, unadulterated version of a complete myth. Instead, what we have is a bunch of interrelated stories that, when taken as a whole, might create the appearance of a single underlying myth. But make no mistake, there was no canonical, pure and single version of any myth. One of the most important aspects about myth is that it was plastic and could be molded like clay to fit multiple contexts and do many different things. Scholars call these divergent stories variants. And even in ancient Greece, there was a lot of work done to find and collect these differences. To give you a sense of how ancient scholars were concerned with collecting and identifying variants, I'll present you with part of a myth involving the great figure Heracles, who is probably the most well-known figure from Greek myth, and not only because of the pleasant film by Disney. Some of you probably know that because of his awesomeness, Heracles got included in a number of important adventures, and one of these was the voyage of the famous ship Argo, crewed by lots of heroes collectively known as the Argonauts, or Sailors on the Argo. We'll summarize here part of the story for you. When Heracles went on the quest for the Golden Fleece in the far eastern reaches of the world, he was attended by Hylas, the son of Deodamus. When the ship, the Argo, landed in Mysia, Hylas went out to get water for the ship while Heracles fashioned a new oar. When Hylas got to the spring, some nymphs, minor female goddesses, saw him and dragged him down into it. Heracles and his buddy Polyphemus went in search for him, but they were unable to find him. Neither returned to the Argo or continued on the quest. This is more or less the version from the poem The Voyage of the Argo by Apollonius of Rhodes, or in Greek, the Argonautica. It was full of mythical references, and some scholars in antiquity decided to give more information about them, and even provide other mythical versions out there. One note by an unknown commentator was attached to the line where Hylas is mentioned. For those of you who are interested, that's 1207. Don't get caught up in knowing all the details. Instead, focus on how many variants there were about just this one episode of the Heracles story. The note reads in its entirety, Apollonius says that Hylas is the son of Theodamus, but Hellenicus says that he was the son of Theomenes. Anticlades, in his work, The History of Delos, reports that it was not Hylas who went to get water, but Hylos, Heracles' son, and it was he who went missing. Heracles had a lot of younger boyfriends. Hylas, Philoctetes, Diomus, Perinthus, and Trinks, whom the city in Libya is named after. Now, Socrates the historian says that Hylas was not the boyfriend of Heracles, but of Polyphemus. Onassis, in his first book of On the Amazons, tells a more truthful story. 
Hylas was not snatched by nymphs, but in fact tumbled into a spring, and that's how he died. There's a lot to process here, and again, there's no need to memorize the details. What you should take away from this is that myth is contested and variable, and that the Greeks like to collect and organize those variants. Occasionally, they also like to strip away the more unbelievable aspects of their stories to make them less fantastic, but we'll come back to that in a future episode. For now, just remember that people could either tell or interpret these stories in very different ways. Now, what about the content of the myths? Earlier, we mentioned briefly that these stories involve the heroes of the past and the gods that could walk among them, sleep with them, or otherwise interfere with their pesky lives. To be clear at the outset, heroes are mortals that are greater, stronger, and more divinely blessed than you or I, but they are still subject to death just like you and I. And they often die very unheroically, at least according to our idea of hero, which does not line up with that of the Greeks. We'll have more later on how Greek heroes do not have the same moral fiber that we come to expect when we use the word. But for now, just know that heroes are way more awesome than we could ever be, but we're subject to death. As for the gods, it's important to know that the gods of the mythical world intersect with those that were actually worshipped by the Greeks on the ground in a number of ways. But, and this is a huge but, Greek myth is not the same thing as Greek religion, and myth cannot be reduced simply to an expression of religious feeling or to describe a religious ritual. There are myths that do tie into religious life, such as the myth of Demeter we saw in episode 3, but myth as a narrative tool is like a Swiss army knife, able to perform many functions, including just to entertain or delight an audience, but more on that in the next episode. For now, the crucial point is that the Greeks both worshipped and told stories about numerous gods. The technical term for society that has many gods is polytheistic, which comes from the Greek term meaning essentially many gods. So Zeus and Hera, Apollo and Artemis, Hermes and Aphrodite, Oceanus and Tethys, sea goddesses and river gods, and many, many others could coexist without a problem. As a whole, the entire group of gods can be referred to as a pantheon, another Greek term meaning cleverly all the gods. There's a lot to say about the gods in general, but a couple points are worth making here. First, Greek gods are immortal in that they do not die a natural death. They can be wounded and on rare occasions are even said to die, but for all intents and purposes, they are deathless and immortal. In addition, they live far apart from humans, on or above the highest mountain in Greece, Mount Olympus, and they have lots more power than you or I. Second, the gods are powerful beings, but not necessarily all-powerful. They work within set parameters and can do some really impressive things, but they tend not to be able to alter the fabric of nature. They can't make planets explode like the Death Star, they can't teleport anywhere, and they usually have to be physically present in a place to make something happen, thunderbolts and arrows accepted. Finally, although we tend to think of a god as somehow kindly or fundamentally good, the Greek gods of myth do not act that way and, as a general rule, care very little about humans, as we saw vividly in the last episode. They can, however, become attached to certain heroes if the mood suits them, or take a completely hostile stance towards them if they feel even the slightest bit offended. 
to put it very simply, Greek gods are infrequently a model for good human behavior, and it's usually quite the opposite. One last point about the content of Greek myth. It is far more concerned with its human actors, the heroes of the past, than other mythical systems, which feature divine figures mostly. From my long experience with the subject, Greek myth is primarily about how the past links to the present and involves Greek people doing Greek things on a Greek landscape. Very few myths are set in a purely imaginary land, and even when they are, as the Greeks colonize other areas of the Mediterranean, they tried to place those myths in real places. In other words, Greek myths often feel like historical accounts, but without the reliability of first-hand accounts and eyewitnesses. In fact, one ancient division of time calls the mythical period basically unverifiable accounts of the past which have been embellished with fantastic details. Since the oral stories and songs that the Greeks told prior to and even after the advent of writing were usually set in the distant past, an important question arises. What did the Greeks think about their own past? It is, of course, always dangerous to say the Greeks believed X, as if every person shared the same viewpoint. But if we had to summarize the way the Greeks of the earliest period thought about the past, it might be something like this. First, for the historical Greeks, there was a now which involved their current lives and the living memory of their family members and community, and a back then, which represented the past that went back beyond memory. The back then was generally regarded as a different sort of time, when a sturdier and greater stock of people lived and, at times, communicated with the gods. These were the Greek heroes. The historical Greeks worshipped the gods, but gods rarely, if ever, visited them. In the mythical past, the gods could walk among Greek heroes. Many of the heroes, in fact, were born of gods having sex with mortals. Thus, the past featured a more powerful people than the present, even if the heroes were not necessarily better ethically or morally. Third, as mythical time, which has an internal chronology, sort of like history, progressed from the creation of the world toward the present, chaos and unruliness was gradually replaced by something more civilized and orderly. That is, the world becomes more identifiably Greek. Not only do the Olympian gods, headed by Zeus, become installed as the final and best set of gods, the world becomes less hostile. Giant monsters either disappear or are actively destroyed by the heroes. Villains no longer rob and kill travelers, and so on and so forth. Fourth, eventually the mythical period, the back then, merges with the historical now to form a continuity between the distant past and the present. Even so, there is what scholars call a floating gap between the distant and recent past, where things are murky and more obscure. It is what happens before this floating gap that is what is called the Greek mythical period, known through its rich and vivid set of stories, even if they contain some unbelievable elements. As noted earlier, the Greek mythical period too has its own chronology and timeline. For example, the Argonaut adventure that features Heracles precedes the Trojan War, and Perseus, who kills Medusa, happens to be Heracles' great-grandfather. The chronology of Greek myth is often based on genealogical connections, and anyone who is interested in seeing how interconnected mythical figures are can do a quick Google search, and you will be amazed. 
Over time, Greek intellectuals and historians worked hard to transform a number of separate and independent tales into something approaching an interconnected mythical supersystem, even if the details could be contested and debated. But it's now time to move on to the last segment of the podcast and wrap up. Thinking about mythical time leads me to some other important basics about time and chronology. One of the things that I've found with my students is that there is some uncertainty surrounding how chronology works, especially when we cross the dreaded ADBC line. Since we'll be using a lot of dates in this podcast, I thought it might be good to offer a quick recap about how all this works. If you feel confident about what AD, CE, BC, and BCE stand for, feel free to fast forward. But if you want to know more about time reckoning, here you go. First, if everyone just counted forward from the beginning of time, let's call it year zero, lots of things would be far more simple. But all time reckoning is artificial and based on different principles and starting dates. For instance, the Christian year 2020 is, after January 25th, year 4,718 according to the Chinese calendar, and starting in August, the 1,442nd year of the Islamic calendar. The years of our Christian calendar are calculated from a year one that is what some scholars guessed was the year of Jesus' birth. That guess caught on, but there's still some debate as to the dates of Jesus' life, but it's stuck and so we follow that year as our first. This Christian basis for our calendar is why a lot of people use the abbreviation AD, which stands for the Latin phrase Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Similarly, the period of time that existed before Jesus' supposed birth is designated as B.C. or before Christ. By way of comparison, Italians basically do the same thing. D.C. stands for Dopo Cristo or after Christ. A.C. stands for Avanti Cristo or before Christ. However, many scholars choose, as do I, to use the non-Christian designation C.E., which means Common Era, and B.C.E. for Before the Common Era. But for all intents and purposes, CE is the same as AD and BCE is the same as BC. Now, if we never went back into the BCE period, things would be relatively straightforward. The numbers simply grow as time progresses. So year 1500 is later than 1492. And year 180, the year that the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius died, comes after 161 when he assumed the throne. Centuries are pretty easy too, partly because we become used to them naturally. So the 21st century runs from 2001 to 2100, and the 2nd century CE, when Marcus Aurelius was emperor, goes from 101 to 200 CE. Things get a little wonky, however, when we start talking about the time before Christ. And because myth and a great many poets and writers of myth lived centuries before, we need to think about how we refer to that time specifically. First, years work differently. The bigger the number, the further back in time you go. So 300 BCE is earlier than 200 BCE, and 10 BCE is before 1 BCE. If you say it out loud, it makes complete sense. 300 years before Christ is older and earlier than 200 years before Christ. And you can conceptualize all of this as a timeline with two arrows running from a center point, one going right, CE, and one going left, that's BCE. Centuries act the exact same way. The 1st century BCE runs naturally from 100 to 1 BCE, and so the 3rd century BCE is 300 to 201. 
when we say that the great playwright of tragedy Sophocles lived in the 5th century BCE, we're saying that he lived in the 400s. Specifically, Sophocles lived from 496 BCE to 406 BCE, some 90 years. Anyways, one way you can think about all of this is that centuries always refer to the same hundred years, with one lower digit, but just in reverse. So the 3rd century CE is 201 to 300, while the 3rd century BCE is 300 to 201, but they both refer to the 200s. Before we get to the final credits, I want to recommend a book that offers a very smart overview of Greek myth in terms of content, time, and themes. The book is William Hansen's Classical Mythology, a guide to the mythical world of the Greeks and Romans. It's got a great introduction, an essay on how mythical time works, and a series of short entries for the main themes found in Greek myth. He and I fundamentally disagree in making a distinction between myth and heroic legend, but that does not diminish my admiration for the book. It's also relatively inexpensive. As always, great thanks go to our voice actors, Julia Summer and A.J. O'Neill, as well as to our fabulous sound engineer, Samantha Kutzia. Our theme music is Brooklyn Tea by the talented saxophonist Jared Sims. That's Sims with one M. You should go by and listen to his music. This has been The Greek Myth Files, signing off for just a little while. See you next time.